how many like first oldests do we have here? Yeah, you people make the world actually function. Grateful for you. You do the things nobody else wants to do and you do them well. How many youngest do we have? That's, that's my people. You make the world a fun place. And we all know it revolves around you. You get the you are special today plate every day. How many middle children? Moving on. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, we, love, we love you too, middle children. Um, uh, a funny sort of stereotypical way to set up the, the oldest, youngest sort of dynamic, which we're going to look at very closely today because actually the last parable in Luke chapter 15 has a lot to say about older and younger brothers or older and younger sons. And so we're going we're gonna to work our way through the, what is known as the parable of the prodigal son. We did Luke 15 big picture last week. We're just going to do that third parable this week, so verses 11 through 32. And I want to give just a brief recap of last week, either to jog your memory if you were here or if you weren't here, you're visiting with us this week or you, you couldn't catch the podcast for whatever reason. Some of this context is helpful for today. So at the end of Luke 14, Jesus delivers some really hard truth about what it means to follow him, specifically about the cost associated with following him. And there's this large sort of mixed group present with him. And Luke highlights in the first two verses of Luke chapter 15, two specific groups within that larger crowd. There's tax collectors and sinners, and then there are these scribes and Pharisees. And we're told that the tax collectors and sinners are there because they want to listen to Jesus, despite the hard truth. And then we're told on the other side that the Pharisees and scribes, they're they're present in the crowd, but they're, they've actually got this contempt, like this low-level sort of simmering anger about Jesus and his ministry. And they're mostly surrounding him at this point to keep an eye on things, to figure out what it is that he's doing and why. And in response to this crowd, Jesus gives the hard truth, then he sort of reads the room a little bit, and in a way that only sovereign God, Jesus, can do. He understands the hearts and the minds of this crowd that's present, and he delivers three parables. First one's about a shepherd and his lost sheep. The second one is about a woman and her lost coin. And the third one is about a father and his lost son. And they all have one big point, which we took as our main point last week, and we'll take as our main point again this week. And that is that heaven rejoices when God graciously saves sinners. And so last week, we took all three parables and looked at the similarities that exist between them. And so we saw that there's more than one way to be lost. You could be knowingly lost like the sheep, unknowingly lost like the coin, willingly lost like the younger brother in the third parable. But there's only one way to be found, and that way to be found is God. In the first parable, that's represented by the shepherd. In the second parable, by the woman. And in the third parable, by the father. And there's only one reason that we're found, and that's because God is gracious and he comes to find that which is lost. And then third, we saw the, our fourth, we saw the last sort of common thread in all of these parables is that there's one response to being found. And in all three parables, that response is celebration, that heaven rejoices when God graciously saves sinners. 
And so last week, very simply, we just wanted to spend our time together in God's word and in our service, rejoicing in the truth that God saves. We also wanted to hold out the beauty of the fact that he still saves. He's still gathering all of his people. He still seeks, he still finds, he still runs with mercy. And that takeaway would have been apparent to Jesus' audience here. Keep in mind, at least half the crowd, probably more than half, has been repeatedly told that they are despised and disgusting sinners. A large chunk of the audience includes people who, when Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need the doctor, but the sick, I have not come to call the righteous to repentance, but the unrighteous, well over half the group understands, I'm in the sick crowd, I'm in the unrighteous crowd. And this man has come as a doctor, he's come to call me to repentance, and they want to hear that, so they're flocking to Jesus. These parables would have been unthinkably precious and dear to them, that there's this lavish father who would seek them and find them and extend grace to them. And as sinful, broken people today, they should be unthinkably dear to us too. And that's where we left things last week, but I intentionally left out one very important, very significant portion of this as we walk through the parables. And it's really just the last third or so of the final parable. And so we're going to pick things up there. If you've got a Bible with you, we're going to read from Luke chapter 15. We're going to do this a little bit differently than maybe we normally would. I'm going to read the first two verses of Luke chapter 15, and then I'm going to jump down to verse 11. So if you've got a Bible and a hard copy or on your phone, I would invite you to follow along with me. This is what Luke 15, starting in verse 1, says. All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Verse 11. He also said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country, and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food, and here I am dying of hunger? I'll get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son." Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. While the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it and let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, look, I have been slaving many years for you and I have never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, 
who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, he said to him, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning, the chance to come together and to worship as a church family. God, in a season of the year where we're typically kind of poignantly attuned to the blessings that you've given in our lives, God, we want to offer thanksgiving. God, thank you for all of the material things that you've brought into our life. God, thank you for the immaterial, God, for all of the blessings that you've given us, despite the fact that we did nothing to merit them. God, I pray this morning that as we look at your word, that the Holy Spirit would take the truth of your word and hold it up as a magnifying glass to our own hearts, God, and that we would see ourselves clearly as a result of the searching impact of Scripture. God, I also pray that the Holy Spirit would help us not to primarily see these passages through the lens of everyone else's sin, but God, I pray that by your grace, And according to your goodness, you would help us to see the reality of our own sin. God, and that your Holy Spirit would move us toward repentance and empower us to walk through our sin in obedience to you. God, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for your goodness to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's how I want to do this this morning. We're going to work our way back through the parable of the prodigal son, and sort of get reacquainted with it. Uh, There's some historical context that's helpful for us that will help us understand some things a little bit better. There's also just an an important lens with which we often miss uh, seeing this parable through that I want to bring to to the forefront. And then we need to have a direct conversation about the reality of sin and the necessity of repentance so that we can get a good, long, square look at the lavish goodness of the Father. And kind of sprinkled throughout there, I want to offer some practical thoughts as to how something like Luke 15 as a whole and the parable of the prodigal son specifically applies today. Let's start with taking another look at at this parable. It's probably headed in your Bible as the parable, parable of the prodigal son. It might say the parable of the lost son. But remember, it all flows in a run of three parables that are rooted in the context of verses one and two in chapter 15. There are two groups of people present. Luke wants us to know that. And the first of the three parables, or the first two of the three parables are pretty straightforward. They're obviously directed toward tax collectors and sinners, that you could be lost and God would find you and there would be celebrating as a result of that. And then there's the third parable, which even if you just sort of look at it visually in your Bible, is obviously more complex. There's more to it. It takes Jesus more time to work his way through it. But he's one of history's greatest communicators and one of history's greatest teachers. And so he takes this more complex parable and makes the same point. Except for now we actually have two lost things. We've got the lost younger brother, which is what we typically focus on. But we also have a lost older brother, which is what I want us to talk about this morning. 
A little bit of context and another spin through the parable will hopefully bring some of that to clarity. So verses 11 to 24 are all about the younger brother. In fact, if the parable didn't tell you that a father had two sons, by the time you got to verse 24, it would feel like a complete story with only one son. And what does the younger brother want? He wants his stuff, right? He wants everything from the inheritance that the father is going to owe to him. The historical context of that is that none of that should be his until dad dies. So for the younger son to go to his father and essentially say, let's just pretend you're dead. Give me what's mine, is the height of disrespect in this culture. And so for this big audience, whether tax collector and sinner or Pharisee and scribe, to hear Jesus say in the context of the story that the father would acquiesce to that demand is totally mind-blowing. That would never happen. What ought to happen in this instance is the father looks at the son and says, sit down, child. You'll get it when it's time, and it'll be time when I'm dead. That's not what happens. The father actually takes the inheritance, splits it out, gives the younger brother his portion, and that younger son does what the younger son does gathers up all of his stuff a few days later, goes off to some foreign country, blows everything. A famine strikes that country. He's got no means for food. He hires himself out to a local entrepreneur or farmer of some sort. He gets sent out into the fields in order to feed pigs, realizes I don't even have as much food as the pigs have. No one will help me. I've got to go back to dad. And so he starts rehearsing what he's gonna say when he gets back. And it's important to notice the way he comes up with phrasing this. It starts with verse 18. I'll get up, go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. That's significant. He understands that in their culture, he's disrespected dad to the max, Dad went ahead and acquiesced and gave him what was his. He blew all of it. And if he's going back home, it is definitely not as a son. And so he says, make me like one of your hired workers, not even like a household servant. It's a, it's a, a totally different phrase in the like, original language here, the New Testament language, totally different. If he were to go back as a servant, that would be saying to dad, take me back into your house, feed me clothe me, take care of me. He does not say that. He says, make me like one of your hired workers, literally a day laborer. I'll live somewhere else. I'll show up for work. You can pay me what you would pay anybody else. And then I'll leave and figure out life on my own. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And all of that sort of culturally for us gets lost because in 2021, things function very differently. But for Jesus's audience, the crowd that he's working with there, they understand their current culture intuitively. They're like fish in water. And so if the younger brother comes back and is welcomed back as a son, not as one of these hired workers, what is the younger son back in line for? More inheritance. Like if the father were to approach the son and say, no, I'm bringing you back in as a son, He's back in line for what would rightfully be his when dad does die. Younger brother understands that's got to be out of the question. So he's not coming home to ask that. 
I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. Keep all of that in mind and shift to the next part of the parable because in verse 25, we pick up with the older brother. Older brother is out in the field. He's working, doing what firstborn children do, which is obey all the rules and do things as they're supposed to. The day ends. He starts approaching the house. As he gets close to the house, he can hear the music and see that there's a party happening. He calls for one of the servants and wants an explanation. What's going on here? And so in verse 27, the servant comes out and says, your brother's here. Your father slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The language matters there. Your brother is back, not a hired worker. Your brother is back. And we've slaughtered the fattened calf because your father has a son back. Older brother is immediately incensed mostly because he can do the math in his head pretty quickly. And the way that inheritance has worked here is that if you were the oldest son, you got what was called a double portion. So we'll just assume that in the context of this parable, there are only two sons. What would happen when dad dies is that all of his estate and all of his property and all of his money would actually get broken up into three pieces. Older brother would get two of those pieces. Younger brother would get one of those pieces. So older brother gets double what younger brother gets. If the father had four sons, when the father dies, we'd split the inheritance into five pieces. Oldest son would get two-fifths. Everybody else would get one-fifth. Does that make sense? So servant comes out. Your brother is back. Your father slaughtered the fattened calf to celebrate that his son is returned home. Older brother does the math real quick. Younger brother already got his third. It's gone, squandered. There's no getting it back. If he comes back as a son, and then we've got to take the two-thirds that remain when dad dies, chop it back into three pieces, I'm the one that's taking the hit. And he's furious about it. So furious that he's not going into the party. So He has a conversation with dad. And it's actually in the conversation with dad that we really get down to the heart of the issue. Verse 29. Looks at his father and he says, I have been slaving many years for you. I have never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Look, it's obvious what the younger brother wants. What's his? Just go ahead and give it to me now. I'll take it. It's mine to do with what I want. You see that conversation with dad, and it's pretty apparent what older brother wants too. Every last bit of what's his. It just has a different expression. Older brothers is right on the surface. It's open rebellion. Disrespect dad, get what's mine, go and blow it on wild, lavish living. Older brother, on the other hand, expresses it through something different. Older brother wants what what is his, every bit of what's his, but it expresses itself through bitter obligation to the father. I have been slaving for many years. That's the actual word for slave. 
That's how older brother feels about working out in the field just now. I have never disobeyed your orders, right? This is expressing itself as putting dad in some sort of unspoken debt. I've never disobeyed you. You owe me everything that's mine. We've all been kids before. Think about telling your parent that you never disobeyed. Totally ridiculous. But that's what older brother says to dad. And he's also got this resentment for his brother. This son of yours devoured your assets. Think back to the setting. Pharisees are Pharisees and scribes, tax collectors and sinners. In the younger brother, we clearly have a picture of tax collectors and sinners, right? Clearly lost, obvious on the outside. They're sick, they know they need a doctor. Unrighteous, they know they need to repent and they see the father run to the younger brother. But who's this older brother sound like? Sounds like a Pharisee. I've always kept the rules. Never disobeyed, right? Luke sets the parable up by the Pharisees and scribes complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. You get to the end of the conversation between the father and the older son. This son of yours devoured all of your assets. They're like older brothers. Notice that Jesus never in there titles this thing the parable of the prodigal son. History and tradition in the church have given it that tagline. What we actually have here are two lost sons. The focus in the parable is on the goodness and the unthinkable kindness of the father. So you zoom out and get the big picture of Luke chapter 15. And what Jesus is saying is that everyone in this crowd needs the exact same thing from the exact same good, gracious, seeking, saving, lavishly merciful Father. You're all lost sinners, Jesus says to this huge crowd. And all sinners need a Savior. And heaven rejoices when God graciously saves That's wonderfully good news to the tax collectors and the sinners. It is wildly offensive to the Pharisees and the scribes, which we'll come back to in a minute. But we need to take a little detour here for a second and have a conversation about sin and how it relates to both brothers. Some of this is going to be very big picture, sort of macro, almost sociological. Hang with me for a few minutes. We need to define sin in both of these cases because there's very obviously one brand of sin for the younger brother and another brand of sin for the older brother. So if I were to offer definitions of the two, younger brother sin, if you're a note taker, you can throw younger brother in quotes, is external and obvious. Every Sunday morning when we get together as a church, this room is mostly filled with what we would consider like respectable, upstanding church people. And there's a certain brand of sin that respectable, upstanding church people are comfortable talking about. In fact, sometimes if I don't hit with enough frequency the sins that respectable, upstanding people are comfortable talking about, I start to hear about it from people in the church. Why haven't you talked about this issue or that issue? Have you or has LCF gotten soft about fill in the blank? And those types of sins typically revolve around the outwardly, behaviorally, externally obvious matters of sexuality or sexual preference and practice, obvious violence, 
alcohol, drug use, addiction, sensuality, vulgarity, pornography. By extension, in today's current American social uh, societal climate, depending on the political or even theological bent of the circle that you might be having these respectable church people conversations in, some of those external obvious sins would probably also likely include discussions about certain sets of beliefs or different ideologies. It's not wrong to want biblical clarity on those types of matters and those types of sins. You get a group of Christians together and you start a conversation about quote-unquote the world and it won't take long to hear all about the ways that the world is falling apart. And typically, what bubbles to the surface in those conversations are the obvious external behavioral sins of younger brother types. The world is just totally falling apart. Look at all of the younger brother sin that's apparent in our society and in our culture. And here's the thing about younger brother types in America today. They tend to know that if Christianity is real and Jesus is who he says he is and what the Bible has to say is true, then my way of life is out of bounds. There's not a lot of mystery about that in American society right now. And for that reason, rather than feeling particularly welcome in churches or to go back to the parable, rather than wanting to approach and listen Younger brother types feel brutally uncomfortable in churches and brutally uncomfortable around Christians at times. And unfortunately, that feeling of discomfort isn't necessarily about feeling uncomfortable with Jesus or even about feeling uncomfortable with the Bible's confrontation with some of their life choices. Most often, it has to do with something else. Older brother types. Tim Keller says it this way. If the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our parishioners do not have the same effect on people that Jesus had, then we must not be declaring the same message that Jesus did. If our churches aren't appealing to younger brothers, they must be more full of older brothers than we'd like to think. Which begs the question then, what's the older brother kind of sin that we're talking about here? So if I were to offer a definition of that, again, you could put older brother in quotation marks if you wanted to. Older brother sin is sin that's typically internal and respectable. And if you're taking notes, please put respectable in quotes because I'm going to explain that too. So let's just start directly from the parable. The older brother in the parable, the scribes and the Pharisees that that's directed toward, their kind of sin is a type of sin that is legalistic in nature, meaning that it seeks to earn or merit salvation from God. And so before you dismiss me quickly with the head knowledge that, well, obviously we can't save ourselves, Tim. The Bible tells us we can't save ourselves, and you say it from the pulpit all the time. There's a more important question than what your head could spit out about that theological question. And that more important question is this. What actually functions in your heart on this issue? So we're nudging into some application here, and I want to offer some diagnostic questions that might help unearth what I mean in this. Diagnostic question number one, when my prayers go unanswered, what is my first gut-level reaction? Is it that God is sovereign and his goodness and mercy are being poured out on me even when I don't get what I want, or is it an older brother kind of bitterness? I have slaved for you, and now you owe me, God. Or what happens when, to use sort of Proverbs language, the unrighteous prosper? 
particularly if that prosperity is something that you would like for yourself? Is what bubbles up inside of you, well, God, you've never even given me a goat. And now look what's happening over here. Or what happens when we hear of what good, respectable church people, again, would call like obviously sinful younger brother types coming to salvation? Is what bubbles up naturally inside of us the sort of celebration that we see happening all through Luke chapter 15 when God saves sinners? Or is what bubbles up inside of you, we'll just wait and see. The proof will be in the pudding. We'll see what happens. That's not to say that sanctification and holiness won't take root in the life of a believer. And again, it's not to say that clarity and definition on obvious biblical sin isn't something that we should want. There's another version of this older brother sin in our day, and it has to do with what I'm going to term respectable sin, which is why that's in quotes. Obviously, there are younger brother kinds of sin, and younger brother kinds of sinners need to be saved. And there's a desire among Christians for pastors to be clear about those sins from the pulpit. And if I don't do that enough, my email fills up, fills up a little bit. But I'll pull back the curtain for you because my email or my text or my social media inboxes also fill up if I talk about other types of obvious, unbiblical, clear matters of sin. Some examples. If I talk about greed and idolatry and money, I will get emails every single time asking me to kind of politely mind my own business, essentially. But the Bible's clear on greed and how we use our money and whether or not we idolize stuff. Another one is matters of like the way we talk, gossip, slander, the way we talk about or the way we treat others when they aren't around. I'll say this from my own heart. You approach somebody on the matter of gossip or slander and you will get the fastest justification for why that conversation was okay that you have ever heard in your life. And very rarely will you be met by, oh my gosh, you're right, my sin. I need to repent and that repentance probably includes an apology to a person who didn't even know I was talking about them. And that can happen from our mouths, it can happen from our thumbs via text message, or it can happen from our fingers in the comments on social media posts. Some other forms of this are the way that we treat or think about the poor, the marginalized, and the foreigner, or the idolatry that can spring up around marriage and family, or maybe closer to home in the last couple of years of life here in America, hatred toward those with different political or social bents than ours. Specifically, hatred toward the representative heads of those other systems. Those sins and others fill the hearts of each and every one of us when we walk into the church on Sunday or into a small group during the week. And yet there's a tendency in us to turn a blind eye from those while we simultaneously chastise younger brother sin. And so this parable is joyously, unthinkably, lavishly good news to younger brothers. And it's equally offensive to older brothers. 
In fact, it's just this kind of message that ultimately leads to the Pharisees wanting Jesus dead. Look, the Pharisees do not want Jesus arrested and crucified because he fed 5,000 people. They don't want him arrested and crucified because he healed a leper or restored sight to a blind man. They want Jesus hung on a cross. They cry out, raise up the crowd to give us Barabbas rather than Jesus because Jesus had the audacity to drag their sin that festers in the darkness of their hearts into the light and shine a spotlight on it. And Jesus says, you will, or the Pharisees say, you will not do that. Crucify him. And it's the ending of this that actually shines that light most brightly. We've already walked through the conversation that takes place between the older brother and the servant and the older brother and the father, but there was an important line right in the middle of it, one that you've probably read a number of times if you're familiar with these parables that you've maybe missed before. So I'm gonna start in verse 25 again. It says this, Now his older son was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then he, that's the older brother, became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. When we think about the parable of the prodigal son, what is it that we celebrate? We celebrate the fact that there's this wayward younger brother who's living wild, wildly and lavishly, squanders all of his wealth, has a moment where he comes to his senses and says, my only hope is to go back and cast myself upon the mercy of the father. And rather than even having to get there and have that conversation, dad sees younger brother from a long way off, forgets all about social convention at the time, hikes up his robes and runs with compassion to the younger brother. And we say, oh, look at the goodness of the gospel. That God would run toward those who are lost with saving mercy. But did you see what happened with the older brother? He's angry and his sin and he won't go into the party. And what does dad do? Defies social convention, which would say that the person throwing the party stays inside until the last guest is gone. But that's not what this dad's doing. He's going outside to plead with the older brother. And he has essentially the exact same conversation with the older brother that he had with the younger brother. When the younger brother came in, dad affirmed his sonship. He bestowed upon him or affirmed for him all of the benefits of that sonship and then invited him into the celebration. Look at what dad says when he gets out there in verse 31. Son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. Affirms his sonship affirms the benefits of that sonship, and then says, we had to celebrate because this brother of yours, this son of mine, was dead and now he's alive. He was gone and now he's come home. He does the exact same thing with the older brother that he did with the younger brother. What does the older brother's sin need? The kind, seeking, gracious mercy of the father. And so dad comes outside with it. Because all sinners need a savior. Younger brother and older brother types alike. 
And so we look at, we think about the parable of the prodigal son, and we think about the time in our life when we were saved and God ran to us with saving grace. And from that point forward, God has been continually chasing your wayward heart and its older brother ongoing sin with gentle, sanctifying, loving grace and mercy. He saved you from the eternal consequences of sin at one time and now he wants to continue to save you from the destructive nature of your sin every day for the rest of your life. That is the goodness of the Father. That is the wonder of the gospel, that Jesus Christ on the cross would die to save you from your sin, then send the Holy Spirit into you in order to help save you from your sin in an ongoing basis until the day he comes back so that he might deliver you from sin in its presence for all of eternity. That's the beauty of the gospel. And so we look at the parable of the prodigal son and we say, oh, those younger brothers, look at what good news this is. While Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, oh, you older brothers, Look at what good news this is. And Jesus, without a shred of sin inside of him, didn't do in this parable what petty Tim would do, which was at the right moment, look right at the Pharisees and be like, you you taking notes? Like, are you catching this? Because the most unsettling part of the parable is at the end. It leaves off without telling us what the older brother chooses to do. Does he go into the party or does he stand outside angry? Like the younger brother said, yeah, look, I got all this trouble and all this sin and I see your grace and I'm coming to the party and the older brother says, I'm not convinced. And does he stay outside or does he go in? And that was infuriating to the older brother scribes and Pharisees sitting in Jesus' audience. So practically speaking, what do we do with, specifically and in particular with this last part of the parable? Well, heaven rejoices when God graciously saves sinners. That's the main point of Luke chapter 15. And last week when we looked at the whole thing, we offered some uh, sort of thoughts and applications for those who are younger brother types. Like God's running with you, running to you with mercy and grace. Today I want to offer two thoughts for older brother types and maybe these are only for my own heart and the most beneficial thing that happens in this sermon is that the Holy Spirit illuminates my own sin but I pray they're helpful for all of us. The first one is this. We must repent from all methods of self-salvation. That is no gospel at all. We need to turn from our self-centered, prideful, hell-condemning type of sin that says, God, you owe me. We have to be ruthlessly honest about what functions in our heart and be willing to surrender our merit-based thoughts of salvation. It is amazing how quickly in the heart of a believer we go from thankful for God's grace to yo me. I mean, it happens so fast. Oh, I'm a sinner and I'm in need of grace. Oh, I'm pretty good. He owes me. No, you're not, and no, he doesn't. Like, that is the truth of the gospel, I am not deserving of God's mercy and I never could be. We have to be willing to repent of that. And it starts by asking yourself the honest sort of seeking question of just one simple act of obedience. Are you obedient 
because that's what brings joy to the Father and ultimately the most joy and fulfillment to your own life? Or are you obedient so that you can get something from God? The answer to that question lets you know where you might need to do some repenting. And then the second piece here is that we must be willing to receive God's grace for our quote-unquote respectable sin. Not just receive it. We need to become a people who are willing to seek God's grace for our respectable sin. It does our souls no good to pretend that our respectable sins are of a different category than younger brother sins. It does us no good to try to justify them or to rationalize them or to ignore them. The good news of the gospel is that there is enough mercy in Christ to save you from your sin initially and then to sanctify you from your sin for the rest of your life. And in your older brother kinds of sin, the father is running to you with mercy. That's the beauty of this parable. That's the beauty of the gospel. He is not ashamed of you. He is not condemning you, but you're also not fooling him. He knows where that sin lurks inside each and every one of us, and he is ready, willing, and able to graciously empower us to face it, repent from it, and move through it. We have to humble ourselves, call call our sin what it is, and then allow him to do that sort of work. Just take Thursday as an example. You woke up on Thursday morning, Thanksgiving, you were filled with warm, fuzzy thoughts about all the things that you're grateful for in life, and somewhere between like noon and 6 p.m., a subtle shift happened inside of you, and your gratitude turned to gluttony. Like you made jokes about plate number one and number two and number three long after you were full. And then it's possible that sometime late that evening or the next day, your gratitude has shifted to greed. And the Black Friday sale was just too much for you to pass up because why would you not need another TV or another thing? And then we all came together on Sunday morning Nobody said anything about the gluttony or the greed because those are respectable sins. We don't talk about those. We look the other way. We're talking about other stuff, younger brother kinds of stuff. And so gratitude and gluttony and greed, yay America. But the reality is all of that sin needs a savior. And the good news of the gospel is that the father is running toward you with mercy and grace toward those sins too. Brothers and sisters, he's saved us from sin. He longs to continue saving us from sin. And one day he's going to come back and deliver us from sin forever. Amen? That's the beauty of the gospel. When Martin Luther walked up to the door of the church in Wittenberg and he hammered his 95 theses up there that was his condemnation of the Catholic church at the time, Thesis number one said this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance in our younger brother and in our older brother, sin. And the good news of the gospel is that there is enough grace and mercy for all of that repentance. Amen? I want to end with this. Um, we use this book quite a bit in our services. It's called The Valley of Vision. It's their recorded prayers. Um, I want to just hold them up so you could see them. Uh, this is it's the exact same thing in both ones. This one has the cover of a nice, like, Vermont fall, and this one looks a little less conspicuous. The reason I, I'm holding these up today is because there's a whole section of recorded prayers in here. 
solely about repentance. And it's so helpful for the American church today because culturally we're much more comfortable with the language of like self-help than we are with the language of repentance. And so there are a bunch of prayers in here that give verbiage to just how you can approach repentance on any number of sins. And so I use this pretty frequently in my own time with the Lord. I'll start with one of these prayers of repentance that's in here, and it'll just give me the language to launch into my own praying and confessing and repenting before the Lord, and it's super, super helpful. I get no kickback from Banner of Truth if you buy these, but you can literally just search Valley of Vision on Amazon, and tons of different forms of this will pop up. I will warn you, they're in archaic language. It's a lot of these and thous and thys. That's why on Sunday mornings, we switch those to yous and wees and eyes. Um, but a little bit of work and you can kind of soldier through that or you might be able to find a modern translation. So I would encourage you to, to grab this because it's a helpful tool that could help you in your own repenting. And even though this wasn't maybe the most comfortable sermon or the happiest sermon that's ever been preached from this pulpit, uh, by God's grace, it could be the most fruitful in all of our lives if we allow the Lord to meet us in our repentance with his mercy and grace. Amen? Amen. Let's worship together. You can stand up.